Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Today, as a matter of fact, is part three of my series that I've been preaching. I didn't announce part three last week because I didn't know if I could make a part three out of it. I didn't want to get myself committed to something. But I felt uh, the strong possibility that I could do a part three on this. And at part one, in summary, was the presence of God in the Old Testament and the significance of the temple in the, with the presence of God. Uh, part two had to do with there is no more temple, but there's still the presence of God. And Paul told us, as we learned in that second part in this series that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit now, and the individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he is welcome in those areas whenever we are welcoming him, whenever we live the kind of life and and conduct ourselves in a way that, that he wants to be there. So we want our church to be a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome. We want our lives to be a place where the Holy Spirit is welcome as well. Now, this third one has to do with the Holy Spirit and the last days. And I've put a little subtitle under that for myself that says, The Best is Yet to Come. Now, that's been a theme in the first and the second. But we're going to see also, coming from that, that passage in Haggai, uh, whenever they were talking to uh, Zerubbabel about rebuilding the temple, and, and uh, the, the old prophets were disappointed in the appearance of the temple that was replacing Solomon's temple, which was totally destroyed. And the older ones who had seen the old temple were dismayed, disappointed. They just didn't think the temple would ever be the same again. And the popular line that they said is the, uh, the glory of the latter will never equal the f- glory of the former. And then Jesus used the same uh, words and turned them around against them. And he said, no, the glory of the latter will exceed the glory of of the former. And so we, I think we were a little bit encouraged last week by translating that into our covenant, the New Testament times, this age of grace. And I think we will see that even more strongly emphasized in this sermon today, that the glory of the latter will exceed the glory of the former, that folks, the best is still yet to come for us. And, and that's even at confessing and admitting the fact things are getting pretty rotten in this world. But we as children of God and we as members in, uh, of, of the body of Christ have a hope that goes beyond the conditions of this world. So we can hold on to that hope that for us definitely the best is yet to come. So I, I was thinking as I was putting this together... Uh, not only what would God have me speak to you about, but what would you enjoy learning about? So what I'm bringing to you today is uh, Paul's pneumatology and its eschatological significance from the incarnation until the consummation. I said, now they'll want to know about that. 
<laughs> did, did that pique your interest or did you say, what? <laughs> I'm just having fun with you. In other words, I can reduce that down from Bible talk into the significance of the Holy Spirit in the last days. That's what all that jargon really means. Paul wrote extensively on the Holy Spirit. That is a major theme of his letters. He emphasizes the personal aspect of the Holy Spirit like we learned last week and his abiding presence. emphasizes the empowerment of the believer. When we study the Holy Spirit from Paul's writings, most of the time we put the emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't you agree? When we're talking about the Holy Spirit in this context, in this day and age, in a Pentecostal church, we usually end up talking about empowerment, the Holy Spirit and the power to do something, either to manifest gifts or the power to be a witness, but we usually take that approach. This other aspect of the Holy Spirit, because we focus so much on the power part of it, we miss... And it's right there in front of our face in Paul's writings. And we miss it. We miss it so much that probably a good deal of what I'm going to share with you today, you're going to say, I never really saw that before. And the, the, the irony of it is, is it's all over Paul's writings. That aspect I'm talking about is not just talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, his empowering of the believers, but the and I'm going to use the word again, eschatological significance. And I, I use that because the word eschatology, you don't have to try and work that into everyday conversation, but you may read that from time to time if you're doing any of your personal studies. And I want you to be aware of what that is. Eschatology is very simply the study of the end-time events. So the eschatological significance of the Holy Spirit is what does the Holy Spirit mean to us with reference to the end times? And especially when we're talking about the consummation, and that's another word I used in that fancy phrase I opened up with. When we read the word consummation, you may read that in your personal studies as well. That means the wrapping up of this age, the end of this age, when this all comes to an end, that is the consummation of the age. Those are two terms you should be acquainted with, and you will read them from time to time if you're uh, reading any material that takes you a little bit deeper into God's Word. Now, understanding end times, or uh, maybe more accurately, I, I don't want to really use end times and last days interchangeably. Here's one of these things you may have not thought of before, but biblically speaking, end times and last days are not the same thing. The last days, the phrase was uh, used by Peter whenever he witnessed this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There we read in the uh, first part of the book of Acts. And he, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to stand up and make an explanation of what just happened. Because this was, this was unprecedented. This had never in the history of mankind ever happened to anybody before. This was a first. And nobody knew what to make of it. So Peter stands up, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he explains to them, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy by Joel. And then he 
quotes it, and he rewords it a little bit, but he, he stays true to the meaning, that Joel said that in the last days, and Peter started that, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy, that in the last days, there's the phrase, the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now, he establishes right there what we need to understand about what the last days are. Or the concept, the idea of the last days is. And that is that the last days, and I've told you this before, but sometimes things just go by. The last days, technically, are from Christ to Christ. I want you to understand that. From his incarnation to his second coming. Those are all the last days. Now, the end times, whenever we speak of the end times, speak about that last segment of the last days, the last of the last. Biblically, that's, that's the definition, the differentiation between those two. So, last, last, we're already in the last days. And if you understand this, if you can get a hold of this, that we are not only in the last days... But Paul was in the last days. The apostles were in the last days. In other words, in those sequence of ages that span the entire history of man, we're in that last phase, if you think of it like that. All the other phases of the existence of of, of man throughout history have passed. We've entered into the final stage, the final lap, beginning with the coming of Christ and ending with the return of Christ. That's why Peter could accurately and honestly stand up and say, this was, is the fulfillment of that which is prophesied by the prophet Joel, that in the last days. And so Paul lived with an understanding that he was living in the last days. What Paul did not understand is how long those last days would be. So much of his writings has to do with an anticipation of things that would happen in his lifetime. We all live with that anticipation. He was told when the last days were, but he was not told when the end times were or when the end, the last lap of the last phase would take place. So he writes with an anticipation, for the Lord himself shall descend with the heaven from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we. So see, in his day, there in 60, 70, 50, 60, 70 A.D., when he's writing these letters, he had a personal anticipation that being in that period of time between the appearances of Christ, that there would be an event occur that he would be a part of and a witness of. He didn't get to see it. Many people throughout the days of the last days have anticipated, could this be the time of his returning? We all anticipate the time of his returning. Now, here's something you need to understand. There's a lot of prophecy teachers these days. There have been for many years. And a lot of them try to stir up the people by saying, now, here's some signs that must take place that let us know we're in the last days. Now, first of all, they use the phrase last days wrongly. We've been been in the last days for a long time. So you you can turn the channel. The minute you hear them say, 
These signs prove we're in the last days because they've missed it completely. Now, if they happen to say end times, then here's the second problem they have. Because these signs have continued throughout the last days. And we do not know. Jesus said very plainly, only the Father knows. The angels in heaven do not know. You do not know. And these people that come up with this new formula, this new revelation they've gotten from Scripture, well, that has to do with, with using these tricky little things like trying to make... Peter says the day with the, with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And some people take that and use it now as a formula. And they take that formula and try and go back and pick out days in the Old Testament and convert it to thousands of years and say... Uh, like, like, like equating it, for instance, to the creation with the seven days. So they try to say that the entire span of man is going to be like seven days, seven days. A day is a thousand years, seven thousand years. So we're entering into the last one. That, that, that is all hokey to use a theological term. Don't, don't buy into that stuff. Don't buy into the teachings in the Old Testament. They, 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 they extract from the Old Testament about studying the trumpets. And how those trumpets, they try to make that apply to the last day, the sounding of that last trumpet. Those are all, that has nothing to do with eschatology whatsoever. They have to do with selling books and getting your money. That's all they have to do with. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming. Paul anticipated that in his days. End times, last days. Well, Jesus spoke about last days and he spoke about end times. He spoke about, uh, during the last days, false Christs, warring nations, persecution of the very people he was talking to. He said, you will be persecuted. Pray that your flight be not in Sabbath, neither in the winter. He was talking to those people for things that were going to come to pass for them. So it was not all that futuristic. Some of it was a, a very short future for them. He left the temple, and I mentioned this last week, and his disciples came to him to ask him uh, about uh, the, the temple, and, and he says, See ye not all these things? Not one stone shall be left upon another, till all these things shall come to pass. And so they chewed on that for a while, put together three questions, and then came back to him privately and said, Master, tell us, when shall these things be, with reference to the temple being destroyed? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And then Jesus went into the rest of the 24th chapter of Matthew talking about describing the conditions of not only the end times but the last days. And Jesus said, as, as Luke recorded that discourse, when you see Jerusalem compassed about with enemies, know that the end is near. Now that already happened, see? So there's a combination of things that was, Jesus was talking about when you see Jerusalem compassed about with enemies. That happened in 70 A.D., for them that he was speaking to, that was the end. Yet, there is a futuristic application of this as well. Paul talked about the end times. Peter talked about the end times. Peter said, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, now he's not talking about end times. He's, he understands he's in the last days, we're in the last days, but he's in the last days. So for the past 2,000 years, here's what Peter said we would have, scoffers, will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the day of the Lord refers to the coming of the Lord and those events that will happen at his coming. Great cataclysmic things will happen. There will be war whenever he comes. The defeat of evil when he comes, that's the day of the Lord. The heavens will disappear with a roar as he puts all of these end time events into a little nugget here. Because at the very moment Jesus returns, the heavens are not going to dissolve and in, in, uh, disappear with a roar. But that will be an eventual part of the last day events. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives. And that's where we're really getting down to what it means to us. If we're living in the last days, and there will be scoffers in the last days, and there's nothing that's going to come for the end of this age or the end of this world of any good unless you're serving the Lord, then in view of all of that, we ought to live every day holy and righteous before the Lord. In view of the fact we know it's going to happen, in view of the fact that nobody knows the day or the hour of his return, we ought to live holy and righteous and godly lives before the Lord. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth and the home of righteousness. Now, that's what we're looking forward to. That gets to the good part for us. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, and it really makes a difference in what spiritual condition you are in, whether you're looking forward to this or not, doesn't it? If you're not a Christian this morning, this is not something you're looking forward to. Jesus is coming back. All sin and rebellion is going to be put down. And then eventually, before everything is completed, I mean, by the time everything is completed with God's plan for this earth, this earth is going to melt away, the heavens are going to melt away, and there's going to become a new heaven and a new earth. That is wonderful news for me. I'm saved. I'm a child of God. I have my hope in eternity. I'm looking forward to those things. No matter how black things are now, no matter how bad and dim and dingy they might be, I have a hope. I have a future. We win in the end. That's good news. But if you're not in Christ, you can read this and you can say, Oh, me. I'm not sure I want that to happen. It's going to happen anyway. Here's the fix. Get right with the Lord. Prepare yourself for what he has to come. If you're right with God, if you've given your heart and life to him, you have nothing to fear. It's a simple fix. So, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now, Paul wrote about the last days. He said, the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. That's not only what's going to happen in the end times. That was happening in Paul's days. That period of time between Christ to Christ, what these Bible writers are explaining was not going to be a period of time of the church being a, a, a total unrivaled success. It was not going to be a time of everybody finding peace in God. It was going to be a time of some people serving God, the church moving forward through struggles and trials and warring, spiritual warfare, it was going to be time marked by people giving it a shot and dropping out. It was going to be marked by a time of people casting doubt on whether this is really real or not. 
That whole period of time between Christ to Christ would be filled with the doubters, the scoffers, the skeptics, the unbelievers. The whole time we would wrestle against that. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith. They'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They'll speak lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with an iron. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And you can know, understand that Paul is speaking as though he is living in those latter times because the abstaining of meat was an issue in those churches. And, and Paul is saying, don't be surprised that we have these issues in these churches. That the entire, what I might call the church age, the entire church age is going to be marked by this kind of, of grappling with theology and doctrine and conduct. And then he said this, and know this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And once again, that was in his day as well. Then he lists these kind of things that define perilous times. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parent, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God and having a form of godliness, but not denying the power thereof. And he says, from such turn away. So Paul is telling Timothy these things would earmark the entire period of the last days. Number two, the Spirit and His significance for us in the last days. There are two things about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the outpoured Holy Spirit, that were most significant for us, not only then, but for today. I know when you get into churches that may consider themselves to be cessationists, they view the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost as being a historical event. Very rarely looking to see the significance of that for this day and hour. But is there a significance for it? Absolutely there is. The significance, whenever Peter identified and said, in the last days... I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So if the last days stretch from Christ to Christ, then it, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is significant for every person from Christ to the returning of Christ. It didn't just fulfill the needs of two generations. The last days, the outpoured Holy Spirit is a feature, a necessary feature of that entire period of time known as as the last days. And the only thing we can say for certain is he didn't come yet and he must be closer now than it was for Paul. That's all we can say for a certainty. And I can say, likewise, by the same logic, he didn't come yesterday. I'm one day closer. And if he doesn't come today, I'm one day closer. We can know that for a fact. That in itself should be enough information to steer any reasonable Christian away from date setters and sensational prophetic teachers who think they've figured out some Bible code. During these last days, the Spirit is at work. He didn't start going to work a decade ago. 
He didn't start going to work in the early 1900s with Azusa Street. He went to work on the day of Pentecost when they were gathered together in one place, in one accord, and he came and he was poured out upon all flesh, and he went to work, and he's been at work ever since. So Paul uses three metaphors to help us understand what the Spirit is doing in these last days. Not only did the outpouring of the Holy Spirit signify the literally the, the, the early stages of the last days, testified to the fact they were in the last days, the last days didn't begin with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but it was the testimony, this is the last days. It established a definite mark. Not all, and we, we usually understand that. But not only did it testify of that, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit also brought a guarantee of some things. And that's one of the things that we rarely see that I was talking about when we read Paul's works. What does Paul teach us about the Holy Spirit? Number one, we, he teaches us that he initiated officially initiated the period of the last days or documented it. And number two, the fact that he was outpoured brought certain guarantees to us. The first metaphor, you might want to have your Bibles ready or just have your notes handy, is Paul describes the Holy Spirit in three passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read those for you. I think it's necessary to acquaint ourselves with those scriptures as the down payment. How many of you understand down payment? Of course you do. Whether you're buying or whether you're selling, you understand down payment. If you're selling and somebody wants what you have and they say, we're going to give you this much money to hold this, we'll be back with the rest. You understand down payment. If you are buying and you have to put a down payment down, that means you're not done. You bought a house and some of you had to put a down payment down. You bought a car. If you made a loan, perhaps they wanted some down payment. It helped if you had down payment. Otherwise, you financed everything. But there's occasions where down payment means this is the first and it's not done yet. Many more to come. And that's a very clear concept that Paul expresses. We don't have to go into mysterious Greek to understand what he means. We get it. We get down payment. But what we don't always get is the significance of Paul calling the Holy Spirit a down payment. First, Second Corinthians chapter 1. Now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. And the word deposit, there's the down payment, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, we probably talk about deposit, but do we often think about what is to come? Well, what is to come? Because we Pentecostals 
are, are guilty of thinking in the Holy Spirit with relationship to his outpouring and that initial evidence of the people speaking in unknown languages and people from other language groups being in Jerusalem at that time and saying, we're hearing, we're hearing people speak in our language. What is this all about? We can understand what they're saying. And we're, we're studying that uh, Holy Spirit. Then we read in Paul that there's, there's these gifts of the Holy Spirit these vocal gifts, these mind gifts, these power gifts, where you can have uh, uh, tongues, you can have interpretation, you can have prophecy, you can have faith, you can have working miracles, you can have healing, gifts of healing, all of these things, and we get so excited about it. But whenever Paul says, totally departing from that aspect of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he said, God gave us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of things to come. Now our interest is picked. What is it that is yet to come? I know what the Holy Spirit is, but it's more than just a daily empowerment. I know what the power of the Holy Spirit is. He is my comfort. He is my peace. He's my paraclete, we use that word, that he clings to me. He walks with me. He comforts me. He counsels me. He guides me. I understand that. But that means that I know the reality of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, I know that there's something more He has for me. It's a guarantee. It's a down payment. God make a down, made a down payment. That means, He says, I'm not done yet. More to come. I'll be making some more payments until it's all paid in full. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Now the one who has fashioned for us this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit, and he uses the word again, as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Are you beginning to see that Paul had this in mind? It wasn't just a passing reference, but he talked about it, and he talked about it, and he talked about it, and he talked about it. He was excited about the down payment. And he was excited about the implication that there's something else to come because the down payment has been made. Because God doesn't welch on his debts. It's not like somebody that gives you some money and the conditions are that they must make the payment by the end of the week or by the end of the month, must make it in full, or they forfeit the entire thing. God's not going to forfeit His money is good. The down payment is secure. Something more is coming for us. Ephesians 1.13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him with a seal. And that's going to be our third metaphor is the seal. We've got the deposit. We've got the seal. So let's just pin that to the wall right now. We're going to take that back down in a minute. The promised Holy Spirit... Paul has called him the seal. But now he goes back to the deposit metaphor, who is a deposit guaranteeing our... Now he uses something he hasn't used yet. Guaranteeing our inheritance until the day of the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now the Spirit had been poured out approximately some 20 years earlier. 
to Paul writing this. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out, those people didn't understand much about the Holy Spirit. They had no pneumatology, which is another one of those $10 words I opened with. That means the study of the Holy Spirit. They had no sophisticated pneumatology. They had no sophisticated understanding of the Holy Spirit. All they knew was that experience. Unlike anything else they had ever known. But Paul studies this Holy Spirit and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit begins to tie together the significance of what happened on that day and what was continuing to happen to people throughout those years and what would continue to happen to people throughout the entire age. And he puts them together some interesting things about the Holy Spirit nobody else had ever revealed, nobody else had ever understood. So he divulges the outpoured Holy Spirit would endue them. Christ said he will endue you with power. That's all they knew. He'll endue us with power. And unfortunately for the Pentecostal church, that's all the farther we go sometimes is what Christ said about it. He will endue you with power. And we stop right there. Well, what's Paul say about the Holy Spirit? What does he teach us more about that? Peter identified the outpouring as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in the last days. So Peter taught us a little bit more about it. This is long term. This is not a one-shot deal. This is for a long period of time. But then Paul began to write about it. And he uses this word down payment. The first installment. Not the full payment. The first Installment has been made and we can expect more. The down payment implies these two important things, a contractual obligation and a guarantee of fulfillment. Though Both of those are very significant in understanding what the Holy Spirit means to us as people of the last days. Let me repeat that. A contractual obligation. Is God good on his contracts? You bet he is. And a guarantee of completion or fulfillment. And we're still asking that question because I'm stretching this out. But a down payment on what? More of what? We pick up on that word inheritance that Paul used in Ephesians 1.14. It's a broad word and it guarantees and it covers all that we have come to rightly expect for our future. The Holy Spirit, these are the things that the Holy Spirit guarantees us. It's been contracted, it's been promised, and you've got the down payment in your pocket. Are you ready for the rest of it? Number one, he guarantees One day this body is going to rise from the grave. How many of you have put your loved ones in the grave in recent years? How many of you have watched that body lowered in that fancy casket into the ground? You've walked away and you've thought about this. And you've said, well, the Bible promises that one of these these days the dead in Christ will rise first. But the more you think about it, the more you begin to wonder, how can this be? I know what the Bible says, but is it really true? I gave my mother and my father to the Lord back in 2001 and 2005. 
the, I have the best conversations with them in my dreams. There they are, just as real as real can be. And just talking with them and not realizing, hey, you're dead. You're not supposed to be here. And I mean, it's, it's all okay with me. It's like it's real. It's not till I wake up that I think, well, there was a visit to yesterday. and It wasn't that nice. And so I stood by the grave at the cemetery. And we said our last words. And they lowered the casket into the ground. And I walk away. And I say at my heart, but there is a resurrection. How do I know? Not just because I'm going by the testimony of the word, which is good enough, but because God made a down payment in me, in the person of the Holy Spirit, that I walk with him, I talk with him, I feel him, I experience his comfort. He guides me, he protects me, he brings peace to me. And when he does that, there's one thing I can say is, you know what, that's the down payment that one of these days the dead in Christ will rise first. (laughs) Because I've been given the down payment and he guarantees the inheritance that we have. I have the inheritance of a resurrection. My loved ones shall rise again. I have the guarantee of the return of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom. When this world doubts that that's going to happen, I've got a deposit, I've got a contract, I've got a guarantee that says, yes, it is. It's going to happen. He's already given me the first payment. The rest of it is going to come. He guarantees to me that there really is a life after this life, after which there will be no more death and no corruption. We might wonder if that really can be. But I've got the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It was the down payment. That shall happen. It will come to pass. He guarantees that one of these days, no matter how bad this world is, the curse is going to be lifted. Death is going to be destroyed. He's going to come back and reign in peace because the Holy Spirit has been given as a down payment of my inheritance. Everything I'm looking forward to everything I hope for, everything that has been promised to the end of my journey, everything that motivates me to keep me going, everything that keeps me pressing on and putting one foot ahead of the other when I don't know where I'm going to get the strength on this perilous journey, everything that pushes me forward when I get so deeply discouraged, whatever keeps me trusting, whatever keeps me believing that the enemy even when the enemy does his best to convince me that it's all a lie. That is what the down payment of the Holy Spirit does to help me press through those times and overcome when it would be just as easy to give up. Except God said, but you know, I've already put a down payment on this. We've got a contract. I'm going to deliver. All you've got to do is just hang on until it comes. That is the function of the Holy Spirit in the last days. He guarantees that God's promises will not fail. I don't have to wonder if this is all true or not. The outpoured Holy Spirit is the down payment. And always keep in mind the down payment's just a token. The best part of it, the most of it, the greatest share of it is yet to come. I've got this much of it. 
we think we've got something pretty good, don't we? We think it just doesn't get any better than this. And you feel the power of the Holy Spirit and you think, Lord, this must be heaven on earth. I don't know if it gets any better than this. Mister, you've got a down payment. You don't know how good it's going to get. It gets so much better than this, you can't even imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. If the down payment's that good, how much is the whole deal going to be? The second metaphor that Paul uses is the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. The entire 8th chapter of Romans is a significant chapter for this thought. Buried in that 8th chapter is where Paul makes reference to the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. But you have to understand the flow of the chapter. He starts off the 8th chapter with a very upbeat message. He has just talked about that miserable wretch in the 7th chapter when he says, oh, woe is me. That uh, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Oh, wretched man that I am. Those things I try to do, I can't do. Those things I shouldn't do, I do them all the time. And it's this wretched, wretched existence. And beginning in the eighth chapter, he says, but there's no condemnation. In other words, don't you live in the seventh chapter. I don't understand Christians who would rather adopt the seventh chapter as their story. You want to live in the eighth chapter. The seventh chapter is where you used to be. When you were trying so hard and you just couldn't get there, you'd take two steps forward and three steps backward. You'd climb the hill and you'd slide to the bottom. You was trying so hard but it never all came together for you. You just forgot to read the eighth chapter whenever Paul got through all of that mess and came out of it and said, But there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you are in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ Jesus? There is no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit and then he spends the next few verses of that chapter talking about what it means to walk not after the flesh as he repeats that two or three different times this is what it means to walk not after the flesh but after the spirit I am convinced people it's as valid today as it's ever been that we need sitting in this congregation we have people who need to understand the difference between walking after the flesh and after the spirit the reason you're struggling is because you're still walking after the flesh the reason you're struggling in life and just barely getting along is because the flesh is still calling the shots. Because you still have the cravings and the urges to do these things and you surrender every time the flesh calls and beckons you. But whenever you begin to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh, then suddenly you live a day and you have no condemnation. Because you've learned to walk after the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul follows that thought down through the 8th chapter. Then he comes to the 14th verse. And he says, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. As he further identifies what it means to walk by the Spirit. Can we then deduce from this, if you are led by the Spirit... You are children of God. If you're not led by the Spirit, then what? You fill in the blank. I'll let you take the heat for saying it. 
Therefore, Paul says, if we're children, then we're heirs. You see how that flows? If you're a child of God, you're an heir. He talked about the inheritance. If you're a child, then you're an heir. And if you're an heir, you're a co-heir with Jesus. And then he says, if, I like those ifs, qualifying this, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may share in his glory. Who in the world ever suggested that living for God was going to be a cakewalk? Who ever promised you that living for God was going to be easy? And why do we get discouraged when we're trying to live for the Lord and all the powers of hell break loose against us? Whenever Paul said very clearly, you're an heir. You're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. But you're only an heir if you understand that living this life means you're going to be walking through some tough times most of the time. If you don't want to suffer like Christ, you will not inherit like Christ. That's what he said. So he talks about this dual condition. First, we're children. And second, because we're children, we're going to live under harsh conditions and we're going to live in suffering and weakness. And that's not the message that most people wanted to go to church to hear today. We want to hear we're children. Children of the most high. King's kids. But you got to get the whole picture. Whenever Paul said, if you're led by the Spirit, if you're children, you're children of God. If you're children of God, you're an heir with Jesus Christ. If you're an heir with Jesus Christ, you're going to suffer like him. So our dual condition is, is we're children of God and we are destined to walk through a lot of troubles and struggles in this world. That's just the way it is. But we ourselves, he says in the 23rd verse, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and that's where he uses this metaphor, the first fruits. We groan inwardly. Just as soon as he says we have the first fruits, it's kind of like a down payment. It's similar. It's the first of more to come. He's just changed metaphors to give this more color. If we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, it says we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, Paul has said just previously, we're living in this world where the very creation is groaning. And then he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are going to spend a good share of our time groaning because we are living in an age when groaning is the appropriate thing to do. Don't confuse groaning with griping. I won't let you get away with it. Don't confuse groaning with grouching. You can groan all you want. Just don't gripe. Everybody knows what groaning is. I'm 61 years old. I find myself doing a lot more groaning these days than I ever have in my life before. Anne and I are enjoying that time of life where the kids are gone and the grandkids are just come and then we send them home when we're tired. So we spend a lot of time, just the two of us. And I have noticed in the past two or three years, there's been an awful lot more 
of one of us groaning and the other one looking and wondering, what are you doing? And we take turns. Until we notice we've drawn attention to ourselves. What are you doing? I'm groaning. It's just the way it is. I'm a child of God. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're living in conditions where Paul says you're going to do a lot of groaning. The world is groaning. All creation is groaning. You're groaning. Everybody's groaning. Because it's tough. And he borrows this first fruit analogy because he knows that this is an arduous journey that we're on. We're going to meet with troubles and trials all along the way. And sometimes we begin to think about how nice it's going to be when we finally get home. And we won't have to groan anymore. And Paul borrows from the old Jewish practice of the first fruits where they put the crop in the ground and as it begins to come on, they would pick the first fruits and give it to the Lord knowing by faith There was more to come. And Paul is comforting those of you who are trying to make your way through this difficult journey. The first fruits of our our, our resurrection, our restoration, our redemption of our bodies. I don't see it yet. My body is not being redeemed day by day, it's decaying. I have pains I never had before. Joints that are aching that never ached before. I'm not trying to talk myself into a rocking chair here. I'm just telling you. I don't feel the redemption yet. But I've got the Holy Spirit that tells me. I've got the first fruits that tells me this body shall be redeemed one of these days. And the final metaphor that he uses is the seal. I've already mentioned that. I, let me read that again from 2 Corinthians where he says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a deposit. And he says in Ephesians 1 as well that you, beloved, were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul keeps going back to this. He likes to talk about the down payment. He likes to talk about the first fruits. He likes to talk about we're sealed. That, that means something. We're sealed. And, and I, I think most of you are aware of, of where that comes from whenever there would be some official correspondence from the king that they would melt the wax and pour it on this, this envelope, so to speak, or, or on the, the scroll that was rolled, so to speak. And the, the, the seal, the wax, would cover the edges so that he could put his ring, his signet, into that wax and stamp that. And if anybody opened that document before it reached its destination, there would be evidence that there had been some tampering. Sealed by the king. 
Well, the contents there are trustworthy. If the seal has not been broken, then what the king intended to be in there is in there. He sealed it. So Paul is thinking of that and he's saying, you people, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I struggle in my walk and you do too. And we wonder, God, where are you? Is it ever going to get any better? Am I going to arrive in one piece? Feel like hell is, is, is going overtime after me. And I get this comforting assurance from Paul's writing, the greatest pneumatologist of his day, and perhaps of all times who had more understanding of the Holy Spirit than anybody else, saying to his friends who are walking on this difficult journey, but you understand, when you began this journey, God took his ring, and that hot wax was melted across the edges, and God put his his signet on there. And you've been sealed, and the enemy can't open it up. It will be illegal. It'll be a a falsified transaction. But the enemy can't get to you. It's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I take great comfort in being sealed by the Holy Spirit. I know whom I have believed and persuaded he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The metaphor of the seal strengthens the metaphor of the first fruits. It strengthens the metaphor of the down payment. It's like we humans want just a little more confirmation than what we've got, than somebody's word. We might challenge somebody and what they say is true. And they say, it's true, it's true, I tell you it's true. And we counter by saying, promise! Because we want a double guarantee. We don't want to just take their their words that it's true. We want them to do something. We want them to swear by their oath, make an oath. We want them to make a promise. We want to make a guarantee. Pinky swear. Do something. Give me a double guarantee. I just want to know that what you're telling me is true. Well, he's told me there's a down payment. He's told me there's a first fruits. But I look up to God and say, God, is it real? Can you really, 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 really double, triple promise me it's true? And God took his ring and he sealed it. And he said, there it is. I guarantee, I double guarantee it's true. Anytime you've experienced the power of God or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you have proof of God's promises in your life. Anytime you are comforted by the Holy Spirit, you're reminded of the truth and the reliability of God's promise Anytime you're counseled and guided by the Holy Spirit, you have evidence of the blessings that are yet to come. Anytime you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, it's evidence that God is faithful and true to what he has promised, and he will do that. Anytime you're anointed, anytime you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, that's evidence and guarantee the best is yet to come. When this body is redeemed, when this journey is over, when my king comes back, when rebellion is put down, when we are raised to new life in Jesus Christ, when the troubles and the trials of this world are over, when there's the consummation of the age, when we get a brand new heaven, when we get a brand new earth, when Jesus comes to reign upon this earth and put down all rebellion, then... That will be the full payment. And you know, a lot of times we even talk about salvation. We 
talk about we're saved. And then people want to get theological and say, but are we really saved yet? I leave you with this thought that there is this dynamic in Scripture about already and not yet. Already slash not yet. You have to keep that in mind when you read the Scripture. Already we have the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we not yet have seen the fullness. Already we have these blessings of God, but we have not yet inherited it all. Already I'm saved, but not yet have I been delivered out of this world. It's an already, it's an all here now, right now, but not quite yet to everything. I'm glad I'm saved, but I'm glad one of these days I'm going to be redeemed. (laughs) I'm glad God heals from time to time, but I'm glad one of these days this body will be made perfect. And that, people, is the significance of the Holy Spirit in these last days. I want you to bow your heads. I want the worship team to come. I want the ushers to come. And let's, let's already begin to pass out these elements this morning.